Today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The song topped the sales charts in Great Britain and the United States in the late 1960s. Now, most of you are like, well, that's before I was ever even alive. But you'll probably know the band that sang this song, the Beatles, okay? Uh, and the song was, All You Need Is Love. Listen to it. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you can make that can't be made. No one you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. All you need is love. All you need is love. Now, the title to that song actually gets it right. The problem is the Beatles were singing of primarily a human love that, that is woefully inadequate. In fact, this song in the late 1960s, this became the anthem song for the hippie movement, right? And this was the, the opposition movement to the Vietnam War. This was uh, the movement basically which said that if, if we can just love one another, that human love will solve all of our problems and we'll have peace, right? So again, the title of the song gets it. The problem is the human love that the Beatles were singing about falls woefully short. Love is the foundation of life. But the question is why and what kind of love is the foundation of life? So we're gonna look at the priority of love, the definition of love and the endurance of love. Let's start with the priority of love. This chapter 13 falls on the heels of chapter 12, which is a chapter on the spiritual gifts. And Paul is talking about the gifts that God gives his people. He uses the imagery of a body to say that there are many parts and every part plays a part. And one gift is not more important than the other. In fact, Paul goes all the way to the extent of saying that the, the behind the scenes gifts, the hidden gifts get the greater honor. And then he finishes that chapter with an example of some of the spiritual gifts. He starts chapter 13 
by talking about how these gifts are to be used. And he uses a couple of examples in the beginning of 13, a couple of spiritual gifts to make his point. Verse one, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Now we're gonna talk about tongues next week in chapter 14, but we see that powerfully working in Acts chapter two, where you have the nations that have gathered and the disciples begin speaking in tongues. The word means languages, the languages of all these nations. And they all start hearing the good news about Jesus in their own native language. Powerful. Verse two, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, the word mystery here describes that which is beyond uh, the ability for a human being to attain. Prophetic powers that, that receive the, the mysteries and the knowledge of God to reveal it to God's people. Think about Old Testament prophets, the role they played, right? To speak God's word to, to God's people who needed to hear it. Faith so as to remove mountains, that remove mountains, that was a common metaphor for overcoming difficulty. Speaking of faith, the, the robust confidence in the ways of God that can overcome difficulties of life. Verse three, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, that's the, the gift of generosity to the extreme of giving up your own very life for the sake of the gospel. Now, this is remarkable. The gifts that Paul pulls out here, think about it. The gift of being able to proclaim the gospel to all the nations so that they can all hear the good news about Jesus in their own language. The gift of of revealing the truth of God and the mysteries of God to a people that desperately need to hear from him, right? The gift of trusting God with such absolute confidence that it helps overcome difficulties in life. The gift of generosity, of being able to give so generously until it hurts, even of giving up your own life. These are amazing gifts that Paul lays out. And yet he says that if any of these are done without love, they are nothing. In fact, he uses three phrases to describe the utter fruitlessness of using the gifts that God has given you apart from love. Look at the end of verse one. Without love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This describes the endlessly reverberating noise that has no melody. Think about getting in your car, turning on the radio loud and intentionally tuning it to static. How enjoyable would that be? Not very. Think about going to a symphony and there's no conductor up front and every person in the symphony is playing their instrument as loud as they can to no tune and no melody. Or imagine going to a college football game and the opposing team is marching down the field and it's a critical third down and you're sitting, sitting next to the home team band and they begin to play their instruments as loud as they can to absolutely no melody, right? What we're talking about here is obnoxious noise that causes you to cover your ears, that causes you to go insane. It's so obnoxious 
That's what Paul's driving at here. That is what using spiritual gifts without love is like. Now, if you don't get it yet, Paul gives you two more phrases. Verse two, without love, I am nothing. Verse three, without love, I gain nothing. That literally means I accomplish nothing. I profit nothing. So for those of you that have accountant brains or engineering brains and you didn't quite get the musical metaphor, what Paul's saying here is think of endless sheets of paper with equations and statistics that at the very end nets to zero. Or think about a profit and loss statement, profit and loss balance sheet. Reams of profit and loss throughout the year that at the end of the day ends in zero profit. That is what Paul is saying using spiritual gifts without love is like. It is obnoxious noise. Obnoxious noise, net profit zero, accomplishes nothing. And what that means is that however gifted you may be, that without love, it's nothing. The what of spiritual gifts matters, but the how and the why of spiritual gifts being used matters more. The what matters, but the why and the how matters even more. What does that mean? If you don't get the why and the how right, the what is useless. If you use your teaching gift without love, you are producing obnoxious noise that is going to obscure Christ rather than reveal Christ. If you use your administrative gift without love, you're gonna produce obnoxious noise that obscures Christ rather than reveals Christ to someone. If you use your gift of mercy, your gift of generosity, without love, you say, how's that possible? If you do it for self-interest, we're gonna to get to it. To make yourself feel better about yourself, it produces obnoxious noise that, that obscures Christ rather than reveals Christ. Love is the pulsating how and why behind every gift that God has given to be used for his glory. So if love is that foundational, so foundational that Paul would say all these amazing, powerful gifts are nothing without love, then it begs the question, what is love? What is love? What's the definition of love? And Paul's gonna define it here in verses four to seven. And you're gonna see here, he uses words that describe the active, dynamic nature of love. Right? He starts in, in verse four with love is patient, meaning love waits patiently. Patience is, is, is God's gift of time or using God's gift of time well. A patient person doesn't rush into something before the right time. Right? Patience depends on God's gift of time. Love is kind or love shows kindness. The word here, kind, it's the only time this word appears in the New Testament. In other places, Paul uses a more general word for kindness. Here, it's a, it is, this is the only time that it's used. And here's what it means. It means pure, 
and unselfish concern for the well-being of another. Love does not envy or boast, two sides of the same coin. Envy, right, wanting what somebody else has. Boasting, bragging about what you have that somebody else doesn't have. Love is not arrogant. The word here means to inflate. This is um, speaking against self-seeking behavior or, or cult, cultivating uh, attention-seeking behavior, right? And that this is what the Corinthians were known for in the Corinthian church. They would parade their gifts and their spirituality in front of people to inflate themselves. Love is not arrogant. Verse five, love does not insist on its own way. There are examples in the Corinthian church over and over of how they were insisting on their own way. With food sacrificed to idols, basically, I wanna eat what I wanna eat. I don't care. Or they insisted on their own way with the Lord's Supper. I'm gonna eat when I wanna eat. And they hosted insensitively. And we're gonna see in chapter 14, they insisted on their own way when they would, they would interrupt someone who was speaking to interject this, this massive revelation they had just received, right? Or they would speak and talk so much they wouldn't listen, right? Love does not insist on its own way. That's an, another way of saying that love, love does not use people to feed selfish desires, right? Love does not use people, right, to get its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. The word resentful here means to keep a record of wrongs. This is the mental filing cabinet of wrongs that you can keep in your head so that when somebody hurts you, you can pull a file out and use it as a weapon to hurt them back, right? Love keeps no mental filing cabinet of wrongs. No record of wrongs, it's not resentful. Verse six, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. This is clearly alluding to the wrongdoing of another. That means that love, and we all know this because we all experience this, love does not take secret pleasure in someone else's failure. Love does not take secret pleasure in someone else's failure. Love doesn't relish the opportunity to say, I told you so. Okay? Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. That means love doesn't spin the truth for selfish purposes. Love doesn't spin the truth to build your reputation or enhance your status, right? Love doesn't manipulate. Love rejoices in authentic, unspun truth. Verse seven, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. To sum up verses four to seven, here's the summary of it. Love is pure and unselfish concern for the well-being and flourishing of another person. Love is the pure and unselfish concern for the well-being and flourishing of another person. Now, here's the critical question to ask. What is being defined in verses four to seven? What exactly is being defined here? Is this defining an attribute called love? Is this defining human love? And the reason I ask this and why it's an important question to answer is because this passage is probably one of the more in, in, uh, popular 
passages of scripture, non-believer and believer alike. In fact, this gets read in weddings all the time. And it's oftentimes read in the context of human love. Now, this clearly has implications for how we're to love one another. But this passage and this description of love and this definition of love is defining a person. It's not defining some abstract concept or attribute. It's defining a person. How do we know that? 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. Not God displays some attribute of love, that God is love. And Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. That means that verses four to seven is describing God and Jesus Christ as the exact imprint of his father's nature. This is a description of Jesus Christ. I'll also add that this, the word love that's used here in this passage is the word agape. There are several uh, words for love in the New Testament. One of them is agape. The other is, uh, another one is eros, which speaks more of the passionate, uh, emotive love that describes human love. That is not the word Paul uses here. This is agape love. This is describing the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, this absolutely affects the way you read this passage. Absolutely affects the way you read this passage. The first takeaway from this passage is not, my spouse is not loving me in this way. So husbands and wives, quit elbowing each other right now. I mean it, quit it whether you're doing it physically or you're doing it in your heart, my spouse doesn't love me this way. Stop, stop it. That's not the first takeaway. Or, or uh, I'm not loving my friends this way. I'm not loving my children this way. I'm not loving my, that may all be true. No, the first takeaway from this passage is are you receiving the love from Jesus Christ that's described here? Are you receiving this love from Jesus Christ? The motivation to love in this way or to be empowered to love with this agape love comes from an experience of the love of Christ, not as a reaction to the kindness or love of someone else for you. You see, love creates value rather than responds to value. Love is proactive, not reactive. And if you're not receiving this love from Jesus Christ, if you're not actively responding to this love from Jesus Christ and you are functionally independent of him, then you have no choice than to react and have a reactionary love, which becomes a conditional love, which says if somebody treats me in this way, I may return and treat him this way. The love that's talked about here is a love that doesn't respond. It's a love that creates. And it's a, it is a love that responds. You respond to the love of Christ. 
before you ever talk about loving someone else in this way. You say, well, what's that mean to respond to the love of Christ? It seems somewhat abstract. It means this, to receive the love of Christ means to receive his love that patiently endures with your sin and rebellion every day. To receive the love of Christ means to receive his love that does not insist on its own way. A love where he didn't insist on his own way, but rather stayed on the cross to bear the wrath of God, the wrath of his father for you. To receive the love of Christ is to receive this love that does not keep a record of wrongs, but rather takes your sin and your wrong and nails it to the cross and then buries it in the grave and doesn't dig it up again. It's receiving that love of Christ. First, before we ever talk about loving someone else, because if you're not receiving that love, then here's what's gonna happen. If you're not receiving this love from Christ, your marriage is gonna turn into a performance hamster wheel where it's, I will, I will do this for you if you do that for me. Just conditional love. And if you're in a marriage and your marriage has fallen into that, you know how awful that is. That is zero fun. That is negative fun. Negative joy. When it becomes, I'm not gonna do this for you until you do this for me. That's conditional love. That's love that responds to value, not love that creates value. And, and love that creates value has to respond first to Christ. Or if you're not receiving this love from Christ, your friendships will become, in fact, your friendships, every relationship will become a source of constant bitterness. Constant bitterness, constant resentment. Why? <laughs> because no one is ever gonna love you the way you need to be loved except for Christ. Listen, your spouse is gonna fail you over and over and over and over and over again. Your roommate is gonna fail you over and over and over again. Your friends are gonna fail you over and over again. Now here's the deal. If you're not receiving love from Jesus Christ and you get failed over and over and hurt over and over, here's what happens. Your heart starts to shrivel up into self-protection mode that says, I am, I am never going to love someone again because I am never gonna get hurt like that again. And before long, your heart becomes a heart of stone. To love is to render yourself vulnerable. Let me say that again. To love with agape love not reactive conditional love. We're talking about agape love here that you receive from Jesus Christ. To love is to render yourself vulnerable. There's a German theologian, his name's Moltmann. He says this, a God who cannot suffer cannot love either. Jesus Christ suffered for you and loved you in that suffering. He absorbed the pain of your sin. He absorbed the offense of your sin and didn't thrust it back on you. He absorbed it. To love is to render yourself vulnerable, right? To love in the way that is described here, which is love we receive from Christ, to love in this way means that you have to open yourself up to be wounded. You hear that? 
To love this way, you are opening yourself up to be wounded by other people because we are all sinners. But you can only do that. You can only be vulnerable. You can only open yourself up to be wounded if you are receiving that perfect love from Jesus Christ that continues to refill you, to continue to open yourself up to be wounded. Now, some of you have been deeply wounded in relationships. A failed dating relationship, maybe a failed marriage, a failed friendship, failed family relationships. And you've been so hurt by it. You've been so hurt that you have, your, your heart has shriveled to the point you've said, I, I am not going to make myself vulnerable like that again. I will not love again and open my heart up to that pain again. And I will just say this as a warning, that when you do that and you start to go into self-protection mode and you say, I'm not going to love again, I'm not going to make myself vulnerable again, your heart starts to get hard. And at some point, you certainly get to the point where you cannot receive love from other people or give it for sure. But at some point, that heart, that heart gets so hard that you, you even begin failing to receive love from Jesus Christ. The heart just gets hard. Understand that the love described here is the love of Jesus Christ. It is not some abstract attribute. It is the love of Jesus Christ. And the proper first response to this passage is, am I dynamically and actively receiving this love from Jesus? Because if you are not, you have absolutely no chance of having any kind of relationship that doesn't end in bitterness or disappointment because people will always fail you. And so first and foremost is I'm receiving the love of Christ. Am I receiving it? And when I am, I am empowered to open myself up to be wounded and to be vulnerable in my love that I give to those around me. Why is love the foundation of life? We've looked at the priority of love. We've looked at the definition of love. Finally, the endurance of love. Look at verse eight. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Verse nine, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What does that all mean? It means this, when the perfect comes. When we're in the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven, you won't need a prophet to preach you a sermon. <laughs> Knowledge will be obsolete because you will, everything will be revealed. All that will pass away. You go down to verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Even faith and hope fade to the background in the presence of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? Because hope is fulfilled. Faith is now sight. Love is the inner personal currency of heaven for eternity. It is, it describes the relationship between God and his people for eternity. Love never ends. Love endures forever. We sing a song here, Oh, love that will not let me go. In fact, we're going to sing it today after the sermon. Probably most of you don't know the story behind that song. 
It was written by a man in 1882. Let me just read you a couple of the lines that we're gonna sing. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. What's the story behind this song? George Matheson, when he was 20 years old, was engaged to be married. He started to go blind. And his wife, his fiance, decided she did not want to be married to a blind man. She left him. By that time, he had written two theology books, and many, would, many said that had he not gone blind, he would have been one of the, the strongest leaders and writers in the Church of Scotland. But he went blind. His sister, out of her kindness and generosity, took him in and started to take care of him. He changed from a, a, a career in academia to pastoral ministry, and he preached blind to 1,500 people weekly. His sister eventually fell in love, and she was going to get married. And the night before her wedding, his entire family had, had left to go prepare for the big celebration the next day. And George Matheson was left in his home by himself in the dark, grieving couple things. One, that he was losing the person that had taken care of him for 20 years as a blind man, his sister. And number two, grieving his own aborted wedding 20 years earlier. And in that darkness, and in that loneliness, and in that place of just feeling rejection and all kinds of emotions, he wrote the song, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. It took him five minutes to write, he says. Five minutes. And it was the only hymn he wrote that he never had to revise. Love never ends. The love of Christ is an enduring love. It's an enduring love. And it is the love, right, that empowers us to put away childish ways that Paul talks about in verse 11. In verse 11, Paul talks about putting away childish ways. Well, what are childish ways? Well, the childish ways are the self-centered view of God's gifts. The childish ways are, I'm gonna take the gifts that God has given me and I'm gonna use them to build my reputation, to enhance my success. It's all about me. It's like a child in a toy box or a play box, right? With a toy that they use for their own pleasure. That's the childish ways that Paul is talking about here. The enduring love of Christ breaks childish ways. Why? Look at verse 12. It breaks the selfish pattern. Why? Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The word know here, it's not just talking about having knowledge about. This word know means an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Intimate, personal. Every person here wants to be known. You are born, by nature of being a human being, you want to be known and you need to be known. You say, well, wait, how does, how does the enduring love of Christ break the selfish pattern? 
because all of your selfishness, all of my selfishness, all of the self-centered focus that we have is attempting to fill what only Christ can fill. And so in our selfishness, we will use whatever it takes to fill the void that we're all aware of inside of our hearts. We will use people. We'll use our spouse. We'll use our children. We'll use siblings. We'll use friends. We'll use a job. We'll use money. We'll use sex. We'll use pleasure. We will use whatever it takes. We become the center and everything is feeding us. Why? Because there's a void we're trying to fill. When you understand the enduring love of Christ, the perfect love of Christ, that Jesus Christ fills that void, it breaks the childish ways. It breaks the self-centeredness. The love that never ends is the future, future eternal light of Christ shining into the present. Let me say that again. The love that never ends, the enduring love of Christ is the future eternal light of Christ that shines into the present. I've shared with you all my, my skiing adventures through the years. And the one, my senior year of college in Pennsylvania, when I went on a, a night ski trip and I went down the back of a mountain past a sign that said slope is closed and I got to the bottom and the lights went out and the lift turned off and there was nobody. Now, I probably haven't shared the second half of the story. I'm at the base of this mountain. Not gonna climb back over. It's dark. There is zero light. Nobody around. And so I start walking up this road, the road that led out of the, the base of the ski slope, fearing for my life. I really was. And I'm walking up this road in utter pitch black, and I will never forget the first time I saw a light. I saw a light off in the distance. And, and it, it, was the, it was the light of, okay, there is civilization here somewhere. That light ended up being the front porch light of a mountain condo. But as I journeyed up this road, this light would get at times dimmer, at times brighter, at times it would disappear, at times it would reappear. Depending on where I was on this road, I would, I would turn certain corners where the light would, would go away, and then I'd turn another corner, and the light was there. And there were times where it got so dim because the tree branches were just covering it over, but here's the truth. That light never changed. That light was shining. My view of it changed based on all that I was navigating on this road. And in a broken world, in a sinful world, the, the eternal light of Christ never changes. It never stops shining. But our view of it gets impeded, doesn't it? By sin, by trial, by hardship, by brokenness, by just intense sorrow and sadness. And all these things tend to either, they dim it, or maybe it flickers and then it comes back, but the light never changes. The eternal light of Christ never changes. Our view of it changes because of the brokenness in our world. Here's the challenge to every person here who has something that impedes that light. Something, sin, guilt, shame, brokenness, trial, death, whatever it may be, that we, we all have something that, that impedes 
that, that love of Christ, that enduring love of Christ that shines. Here's the hope. One day, it will be unimpeded. One day, we won't be looking at a light. I'm using a metaphor. We will be seeing the face of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? You realize that one day, you are going to see the face of Jesus Christ. You were made for a face-to-face relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what you were made for. And in a broken world, that is the only hope that you have that will endure, is to see the face of Jesus Christ and to see the face of Jesus Christ by faith. That's what it is, faith and repentance. To believe what God's word says, that one day he's coming back, that he already came once to take care of your sin and one day he's coming back. And when you put your faith in him and when you believe in him, you see his face by faith. And one day that's gonna become sight. And until it becomes sight, we cling. We cling to the love of Christ. We respond to it. We receive it so that we can also give it. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we gather in this new year worshiping you hearing from your word. Even though we can't see you. Jesus, we read of the truth here that one day we're gonna see you face to face, even though right now we physically can't see you. But we see you through the eyes of faith. Father, I pray for all those gathered who are experiencing on different levels those things that impede the enduring light that shines into the present. Father, would you give strength? Would you work by your spirit to keep those that are in Christ with their eyes fixed on you, Jesus? And maybe for those here that have never placed their faith in Christ, would you draw them for the first time to see you, Jesus, by faith and to long for that day when it will be face to face? Father, thank you for this promise that your love never ends, that it is the currency of life. Now, with you by faith, one day with you by sight, now, interpersonally in our relationships, one day perfectly in glory. Father, would you fix our eyes as we close in worship on that love that will never let us go, And would you fix our eyes on that love and would it draw us to want to run to you, Jesus, to see you, to speak to you, to know you, to live with you, to commune with you. Thank you that you promise that by your Holy Spirit. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.